All right, well, let's do it. Hebrews chapter 13, let's get after it. Uh, this will be the last time ever that we open up to Hebrews. Maybe not ever, uh, but for a while, at least, for a while. Uh, we're going to wrap up our series on the book of Hebrews today uh, with our 26th part. Uh, so we've been at it for about a year now, um, and we'll wrap it up today. Uh, I'm excited to do so with you Uh Looking back on, I mean, we started this in February of 11, uh, so looking back over the time that we've spent going through it, uh, God has been very faithful to us, both as a group of people and as individuals, um, just like we were seeing through good times and through bad times. Uh, and so we praise Him for His faithfulness. We'll wrap up Hebrews today, uh, and the next week we'll start a new series called The Messy Kingdom, uh, which I'm excited about. We're going to look at some of the parables uh, that Jesus told. He had these. He had a few stories that were kind of his favorites, and he used to tell them over and over and over again. So we'll look at a couple of those ones that he told uh, and, and kind of explore life through those lens. Uh, then when we hit the new year, 2012, we'll hit Acts, okay? And so that will be the next book that we walk through. Uh, excited to do that with you as well. We'll pick it up in verse 7 today. I want to say as we get started, big thanks to all who came out for the Fall Festival. Yesterday, uh, very successful, had a great time um, with ourselves as our community and with our, our neighborhood who came out and participated with us. So if you volunteered, if you were a part of that, uh, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that. Um, blessed to, to be with you guys and to be able to serve uh, the kingdom and our God alongside all of you. Uh, so we'll get started here. Uh, if we we're going to recap Hebrews, um, we might say that the book of Hebrews, we, we established at the beginning... I, so February, let's go back to February, right? Because we all remember exactly what I said in February, all 40 minutes of my first sermon, right? No, we've all slept since then, uh, repeatedly. Um, but if we, we started off and we said that Hebrews is a, a sermon, okay? So and we'll see this at the very end, a word of exhortation. It doesn't start off like a letter. So if you read other letters, Paul's letters, and, and um, the letters that we have in the scriptures, uh, they start off with a greeting and things like that. Hebrews starts off, and we're just right in it. It's just like a sermon. He calls it a word of exhortation. Now, when we end here in chapter 13, we'll end like a letter. So don't get thrown off like that, okay? It kind of starts off like a sermon, ends like a letter. So we called it a sermon. It was written by a pastor to his congregation. Uh, he wasn't with his congregation. We'll see here, possibly he's in prison. Uh, some, for some reason, he's separated from them. He wants to return to them. And so he writes them this sermon. He writes them this sermon. And, and the main point of the sermon, we've seen it over and over and over and over again, is he wants his community to endure. He wants them to keep going. He doesn't want them to fall off. Because for whatever reason, whether it was outside pressure or inside distraction, his, his little group was in danger of not finishing the race. They're in danger, I think like we all are, of, of kind of getting off the course a little bit. And so he writes to them over and over again. We saw those warnings. There's warnings all throughout the book of Hebrews. These really strict warnings where he basically tells them, look, stopping is not an option. We don't stop at this point. We keep going. You don't want to know what happens if we stop. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, he's been doing one thing as he's trying to get his community to endure and to keep walking. He's been exalting the person and the work of Jesus. I mean, from, from chapter 1 on, this book is about Jesus, 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 and more Jesus. It's about his sacrifice for us, his blood that covers us. It's about the covenant that Jesus has brought us into. This promise between God and his people that I will be their God. They will be my people. It's about the future that you and I are on our way to. If you'll remember from chapters 3 and 4, he, he said, it's like the Israelites when they were on their way to the promised land. So you and I are on our way to the promised land. We've been taken out of Egypt, but now we're in the wilderness. And so we've got to keep walking on our way to the promised land. And then in chapters 9 and 10, he said, it's like when we're waiting for the high priest to come back out of the Holy of Holies. And we're outside the, the temple, the, the sanctuary. And he's gone in to present the sacrifice, Jesus, to the right hand of the Father. And we're waiting on him to return and salvation to be completed. And then in chapter 11 and 12, and we'll see it again in 13, it's like we're, we're headed towards a city. There's a city that is to come that God is building and preparing for his people. A city where all evil and sin and death is banished. And we're, we're heading and looking towards and walking towards that city. And so he's writing for them to endure. And we'll wrap it up today in chapter 13. We'll, we'll finish off the, the sermon slash letter. Um, but we can't forget, if you look back up in, in chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
for our God is consuming fire. If we're still under this kind of heading of what is acceptable worship. What does it look like for a group of people who have been so saved by Jesus that their lives are worship that God would call acceptable? If you remember from last week, he started off and talked about a few things. He said the way we love the people around us um, creates what we would call acceptable worship. The way we spend our money would create acceptable worship. The way we think of marriage and sex would create acceptable worship. And so we're still in kind of this frame of mind, what is acceptable worship when the community of God's people, whether it's the congregation that he was writing to, preaching to, or whether it's you and I in 2011, as we advance, as we head into the future, as we are not thrown off course by distractions, temptations, and dangers. And he'll highlight for us in this passage three things we'll look at in turn. Leadership, you have it here in your worship guide. Leadership, discipleship, and then worship, okay? Um, let's read uh, and finish off this letter. We'll pick it up in verse 7 and read through. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 13, verse 7 uh, through 25. He says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. All right, it wouldn't be Hebrews if we didn't have at least one thing here at the end, kind of confusing and about sacrifice and blood. So we'll work through that. Um, Chapter, verse 13 here. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. We can chuckle. What would the long version look like? (laughs) He says, I gave you the spark notes. Um, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Okay, he gives us here three things I think that God has gifted or graced the church with, the community, as they advance into the future. The first is leadership. You see this here in verse 7 through 9, and then again in 17 through 19. Um, Apparently, in this little community, there was maybe some tension or problems with how they were understanding the leaders that God had given them. Uh, He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, imitate their way of life, he says, do this because they're, they're exalting Jesus. Verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever in the future. He doesn't want them to be led away. He doesn't want them to be led off course by these strange teachings that might come into the community. Um, the scriptures are clear, Ephesians 4, that the body of Christ, so those who follow him, who would be called his, have been given leaders. They've been given people whose task it is to help the body be the body. Okay, so the leaders aren't given to the church uh, to be the church, right? Pastors and evangelists and missionaries, those people aren't the people who are being the church, but people who are helping everybody be the church. We're all on a mission. We're all the body of Christ. But there are some people who who teach and who preach and who um, evangelize and who kind of lead the church in those areas. And he gives us some instructions here on that type of leadership, okay? The first thing we might notice in in verse 7, he says, remember your leaders. And here's how he, he qualifies or kind of defines leadership. Remember your leaders, those 
who spoke to you the word of God. Those who are speaking God's message to you. This has been a theme throughout the book of Hebrews. If you go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is speaking a message to creation. He's spoken his grandest message through the Son, Hebrews 1 says. And then in Hebrews 2, there are people who have heard that message, who then continue to proclaim that message, who then verbally continue the communication of what God has done and who he is for us. And there are leaders in the community who so do this. And so we might say that Christian leadership authority is grounded in the teaching of the scriptures. Because remember those leaders, those who, who spoke to you the word of God, those who, who kept the message of God in your minds, guiding you throughout your life. Um, Solomon, when he starts uh, to reign in the kingdom back in 1 Kings, uh, he, he says this, and, and I'm always related to it. He says, um, he, he's asking God for wisdom. He says, I'm only a, a small child, and I know not what to do. And that's kind of been my understanding of the past few years here as your pastor, um, praying to God. At, when I speak to other groups, sometimes I'll say um, that, you know, there's a small group in Sugarland who had a, a serious lapse in judgment uh, and maybe their pastor. Um, and, and I really have no idea what I'm doing uh, at all. Uh, and I always ask them not to tell you about that, right? It's kind of like an inside secret um, to that. Um, but the one thing that's carried me, and, and, and we're coming up on three years now of me being your pastor, um, and the, the one thing that's carried me is this understanding that, that the primary job of a leader of the body of Christ is, is simply to be faithful to the scriptures. It's simply to, and to not maybe have charisma or have the best ideas or have their own understanding of how things should work, but be able to just read and understand and communicate the message of God. And we've got to be aware of anybody uh, who, who would want to lead a, a Christian group um, without that, without the scriptures, without the message that God has entrusted to us. So this authority here, it's grounded in the scriptures. Those who, who spoke to you, the word God, he'll, he'll give us three instructions about our leaders. Okay, now we'll say this at the beginning. Um, normally leaders, normally this text doesn't get preached a lot um, for the purpose of it's going to tell you to do and act certain ways with your leaders. And the leaders will be the ones usually leading you and trying to understand this text and follow it. Um, so typically, if you hear the text preached out of the blue, it's because there's problems at a church, right? And so they're like, obey your leaders, submit to them. That's not the case here. We're going through Hebrews, so we're going to address what he addresses. We might say this. We, let's put a three-week immunity on these commands, okay? This is not me... In a lowly, self-conscious place trying to build up encouragement or support, right? This is us unpacking the scriptures. Look at us three commands. The first is this in verse 7. Remember your leaders. Remember them. Don't lose sight of what they spoke to you. Imitate their faith. See the outcome of their way of life. Follow them. He says, you've, you've had these past leaders and you need to remember them. We might say that, that past leaders, they need to be honored and valued. What I, here, what I can tell you about leadership, and, and we have a lot of leaders in here in, in whatever position, um, in the workplace or in the home, uh, leadership is almost by definition lonely. Leadership, you might even like put an equal sign there. To be a leader is to be lonely in, in whatever the context is. I once heard a Christian ethicist say he thinks the, the sexual scandals you know, that are rampant in the church um, aren't because of lust. He says most ministers don't have time or energy to pursue affairs because of lust. The problem is, is loneliness. They haven't connected with the people around them. Um, it's, it's lonely um, when you're leading a group of people. Uh, I think we might say one of the ways we remember our, our leaders, our past leaders, those who have worked in our lives to communicate this message, is, is to honor them, to value them. Leaders who serve faithfully need constant affirmation that they're leading you well. They're being faithful. They need, they need praise. They need reinforcement. Um, so, I mean, I try to do this all the time. I have leaders from my past who have made me who I am today. And maybe once or twice a week, I want to text them. Even when I don't talk to them a lot, even though we're not really in the same circle of life anymore. I just want to text them and go, hey, I love you. Hey, thanks for all that you did for me. Text them maybe like a quick memory, right? Like, hey, I saw that Bible you gave me. It, remembered, it reminded me of all those times we got together and prayed and, and all the things you did in my life. Because I, I want to remember them. I want to honor them. I want to value them. I want them to understand that, that their leading is not in vain. 
but that but that they're they're being faithful on God's behalf, that He's working through them. Just remember them, value them, honor them. Um, there's this idea too that that even though maybe they aren't with us anymore, the idea it seems here is that they're gone, they have moved on, whether um, in life, whether they've died or moved out of the community, but that we should still listen to their message. And I'm reminded of, of chapter 11, where he says, even though people die by faith, they still speak. Even after death or even after they're gone, their faith lives on. And the things that they taught and, and communicated continue. So just remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. If we move to chapter or verse 17, he says, then obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey and submit, two words that are wildly popular. Um, he says, present leaders um, should be humbly followed. We might add, in as much as, again, they're being faithful to the scriptures, and faithful to the proclamation of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who's the same yesterday and today and forever. I, I think what he's saying here is, is look, you, you've got a leader um, you can be the person who groans and complains and causes dissent, or you can be the person who follows. You can be the person who, who just humbly says, I'll submit to you. Um, we are, you, could, you could picture the American church scene as like a, a buffet, and we've got this long line of different plates you can choose from, right? And some plates have better drinks, some plates have better foods, some plates have better desserts, right? You've got different worship and different preaching and different home groups and styles and philosophies and sizes and all these different things. And what some people do is they'll go for 30 years and, and they'll just constantly try to walk through the buffet, right? And they'll, they'll be over here and they'll get tired of this, or they'll be over here and they'll get tired of this, they'll be over here and they'll get tired of this. But they never go somewhere and, and just submit themselves. They never go somewhere and just say, okay, here's where I'm going to plug in. And here's where I'm going to grow with this group of people. And he's saying here that, that maturity, Christian maturity, is found in, in having a leader, having someone who guides you, and then following them. Following them. And it's funny because he, he says here, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Anybody I think who's ever tried to lead a group of people um, kind of can chuckle at this and, and kind of smile a little bit, knowing that um, when the people you're leading are just complaining and grumbling the entire time, no one's having a good time, right? They're upset. You're upset. It's just like, why is anyone doing this in the first place? He says, you have a leader. God has gifted you with someone to communicate the scriptures to you. Follow them. Submit to them. And as much as, again, maybe they, they understand their task and understand that they'll be held accountable. We might add one thing to this. And again, none of this is coming from a place of discontent um, for me. Uh, again, this is scriptures. Uh, I can say uh, I get praised, I think, too much um, for, for what I've done. Uh, and, and so I've gotten to a place where you kind of um, stop believing it. I realized that at a camp I was at not too long ago. Uh, a student came up and was like, you're the best preacher I've ever heard in my entire life. And I was being like, well, thank you, buddy. In my mind, I mean, that meant nothing to me. He's just a little kid. He's probably never heard that much good preaching. He's probably just saying that to me because he wants us to be buddies, right? And then later on, I was realizing, I was like, oh, wow, that just went in one year and not the other. Like, there's one thing to have it feed your ego, right? And be like, well, I am. Thank you for noticing. Uh, and then there's another thing, maybe the opposite end of the pendulum, where you're just like, stupid kid, that was a complete lie. Um, maybe there's got to be a balance there. Uh, and then also with the obedience submission thing, uh, I'm, I'm talking to other pastors who have this problem. They have people who just don't want to follow them. And it's like, well, why did you, why did you make them your leader? And then it's, it's like, well, then you can go somewhere else. I mean, if that's who's leading this group. Um, and, and talking to them, I have to confess over and over again, I've never, I've never wanted to go somewhere in three years here and not had people go with me. Now, there have been things I've been outvoted on. There have been things that I have compromised on and backed off of, which I think is a part of leadership. There's never been a place where I've sat down in front of our leaders or our people and said, we need to go here. And, and people said, no. I think we've, this is not coming from a place of discontent for me. This is just the scriptures. He's saying you've got leaders. They're leading you into the future. So remember them, obey them. And then we might add, he, he says, pray for them. He's saying, hey, pray for us. Pray for us. 
And we think maybe that this pastor was in prison. He, he wants to get back to his people, or maybe he's just in another area um, for whatever obligation he has there and, and can't get back immediately. But he's saying, pray for us. Um, I can tell you, uh, as much as compliments mean and as much as seeing people follow you mean, um, hearing, hey, we're praying for you, just out of the blue, means much more. He says, pray for your leaders. Pray for those who are tasked with the mission of guiding you, of, of equipping you to do the work that you've been called to do. And then he, if you skip just again a little bit to, to verse 20, he says, Now that may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He calls Jesus the great shepherd. This is the only place in the scriptures he's called that. Um, the idea all throughout here is we've got the sheep imagery, um, which we can establish is not flattering, right? Mm-hmm. Sheep are historically very stupid animals, and the scriptures constantly call us sheep. Um, so that's not a compliment to begin with. Um, and, and he says, we have a great shepherd um, who we might say has installed shepherds for his sheep. Uh, you have it here in your worship guides. We could spell it out like this. Sheep have shepherds who have a great shepherd. Again, this language is throughout this, this passage. He says, um, they're watching over your souls like a shepherd will watch over a sheep. The great shepherd. If you remember back, Peter denies Christ three times in the Gospels. Um, and then at the end of John... Three times Jesus comes back to him and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then after those, um, Jesus follows each one of those with, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. So we would have to admit at one time that being a sheep is not flattering. Being a shepherd is not flattering either. Shepherds is not a sexy job, right? Um, That's not a top 100 Forbes like executive power job. Um, you're looking after dumb animals probably because you dropped out of school yourself. Um, so that's, go play in the field with the sheep. Um, and then we have a great shepherd who is leading us. Now, James 3.1. James 3.1 uh, tells us that we should all be maybe cautious to teach or to open up our mouths and talk on behalf of God um, because those people are going to be judged more harshly. But if you presume to speak on behalf of God, um, you should expect a sit-down conversation with him about what you said. Which I think is, again, inherent in here on the side of leadership. He says, obey your leaders, submit to them, because they're keeping watch over you as those who will give an account. Who will say, this is why I took us down this path. This is why I herded the sheep here. This is why I let those sheep wander off because they did not want to fall in. You always need to be aware of a pastor who doesn't seem to understand that there's someone much greater he's going to answer to than a board or attendance or a budget. Uh, so we all know, man, I want these chairs to be filled. If you, you haven't come here very long if you haven't heard me do something like that. Um, but you also probably know there are bigger things I care about. Uh, uh, we've seen lots of people walk away that's fine with me. Because there's, there's one thing I'm committed to. It's the scriptures, it's Christ, and it's an understanding that one day I'm going to have a very serious sit-down conversation about what I said and why I said it. Why we went where we went. But he says, hey, here's what's happening. You as a community, we as a community have been given certain leaders, past leaders, present leaders, and, and we need to understand what they're doing and where they're taking us. As we march into the future, as we advance into the city that God is preparing for us. In particular, we might say what they're doing um, as they equip us to be the body is is they're discipling us. That we're being discipled. We're becoming followers of Jesus. If you look back to to chapter or to verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And then look at the command here. Look at the verb. Imitate them. He says, mimic them. Um, discipleship, we would say, involves imitation, involves mimicking, and involves seeing and then repeating. So Jesus in the Gospels, when he comes to one who would be his disciple, uh, will say these two words, follow me. And they followed him quite literally. You, they, they walked and followed him. And he taught them. And they watched him. And they became Shaped by him. There's this phrase um, from the rabbis that um, a good disciple will have the dust of his master on him. 
the idea is as, as the master, the leader is walking, he's kicking up dust with his feet, and you're so close behind him that you have the dust on you. Why are you dusty? Well, because I'm following this guy. Because he's shaping me. I'm his disciple. So Jesus would say, follow me. And, and then once Jesus um, dies and resurrects, ascends to heaven, and he's off of the scene, um, he has his followers then have people imitate them. So 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul would say to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, you don't have all that much um, all that many scriptures or passages in the New Testament telling you verbatim to imitate Jesus. But you have a lot saying, imitate those who are imitating Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. He says, imitate those leaders. See their outcome of their way of their life. Um, we would say this, the discipleship, becoming a disciple, it takes place in the context of mentoring relationships. Um, living life together. Walking together, um, being taught, being coached. Um, the, the New Testament, I and mean, we say this all the time, doesn't can't imagine somebody just deciding to follow Jesus and being able to do it on their own. It doesn't happen that way. And anyone who's tried has to know that. It's way too foreign, and it's way too difficult, and it's way too confusing to do that. The, the, the best way I can imagine it is um, sailing, okay? Uh, I don't know if we have any sailors here. Um, but in, in 2007, I was at a, a camp, and um, one of the activities we did during the week was we went on these little sailboats in the lake, a um, big lake there. Uh, and I had a partner in our cabin. His name was JP. Now, JP was a rich kid growing up, so he, was, he went sailing growing up. Um, I didn't. I played in the public pool. Uh, so he could sail. I couldn't. Now, if you haven't ever been sailing or tried to sail, if you can't do it, you can't do it. I mean, it's a very unique skill set um, that involves training and time and those type of things. So JP would get on a sailboat, and I'd get on a sailboat. A couple kids would get on JP's sailboat. 20 kids would try to get on mine because I was so awesome, and they just loved me. But I would try to convince them, you, y'all might want to get on JP's boat, uh, because we would get on the lake, and JP would get on the lake. And JP would be on the lake, and it was like he had some kind of motor or jet behind that thing. And they're flying, and they're having so much fun. We'd go on the lake, and after about 30 minutes of slowly floating, we'd get in one spot, and it was just like this dead zone. And I would lay down and close my eyes, and the kids go, what are you doing? I was going, taking a nap, because we're not going anywhere. <laughs> Trust me, I've been doing this all summer, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> so if you want to swim for it, go, fine, I'm taking a nap. And it was, it's, it's, it's funny, and we couldn't do anything, and it was boring, and, and the kids... The kids didn't want to be on the boat with me. It's fine. I didn't want to be on the boat with me. I wanted to be on JP's boat. And it was dangerous, right? Um, Because if a storm started, we're we're there. There was physically no way I knew to get that sailboat to move. Um, We would paddle in for three hours and try to get back to the the lake. It was just a bad situation. and so here's what happened, because I, I don't like being bad at things. Um, if I'm not good at something, I'll either stop doing it or just try to get better at it. Uh, and so I, JP was a good friend of mine. We went to high school together. So I was like, JP, you got to teach me how to sail, man. You got to teach me how to sail. And so he would give me tips throughout the week um, and things like that. And then a couple of weeks, I, w- I just got on the boat with him. And I would just sit there and watch him. And there were certain things he's doing. I can see, like, he's kind of feeling the wind here and see the little adjustments he's making on the sailboat. And so I'd watch him and kind of try to pick up some things. And then a couple of weeks, he actually got on my boat um, and kind of watched me do it and kind of gave me some pointers and some things like that. Um, and it was a long summer, and so kept practicing and doing things like that. But I can tell you this. The, the last week of camp, we got out there on the lake, um, and, and it was the weirdest thing because I could sail. I was pretty decent at it. I mean, we could go and we could move and, and we were having fun. In fact, we got so fast, we flipped the sailboat. <laughs> that was my one goal <laughs> all summer was to be able to move fast enough to just flip it over. And, and we were going. And what had happened was I just needed someone to teach me. I needed to watch someone do it. It was just different. There was no way I was going to be able to figure it out. But by watching someone else do the nuances and feel out the wind and make those tiny little adjustments that no one sees really unless you watch closely for it, I, I learned how to sail. And I think that's, that's how the New Testament envisions you and I becoming Christians and learning how to live the Christian life. It's not something we sit down and go, I'd like to read the Bible. 
Okay, don't know that word, I don't know that word. I'm already bored and distracted. Um, I'll do that next week. I'd like to pray really well. So we sit down and we start praying. I'd like to love and to forgive and to serve other people. Those things are hard to do. They're confusing to do. They involve lots of tiny adjustments that you would never see unless you watch someone closely. The New Testament picture of discipleship, of becoming a follower of Jesus, of becoming like him, is we could call it like a mentoring relationship. It's living life closely with somebody, with a group of people, watching them. Having them give you pointers. This close fellowship with each other. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I learned how to read the Bible by watching an older man who had already been following Jesus read the Bible. There's nothing special about it. I sat down in front of him and watched him read it. And I learned how to pray because I sat down with other people and listened to them pray and prayed with them. And I've learned, as much as I have learned about forgiving and leading and, and, and loving the people around me, I've learned because I've seen it happen around me. Because I've gone to the people who are doing it and going, whoa, 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 how do you do that? Because when I try to do it, I get upset and frustrated and these things have fired my heart and it's not working. And they go, okay, well, here's the little adjustments you need to make. Here's the postures maybe you're, you're missing out on. Here are the blind spots you're not seeing. I've already done this. Let me, let me show you. This is, the, this is the hole you're stepping into. Just step around that here. It's this one-on-one, small group, mentoring relationship. So he says, imitate me. Imitate the leaders. And then uh, you can see this here if you look in, in verse 10. Um, he'll, he'll say we need to, to follow Jesus himself, um, which is never a bad thing. He says in verse 9, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And we don't know exactly what's happening here. Um, we think that these are Jewish Christians who have been struggling with going back to Judaism, um, which the pastor thinks is not an option at all, which is why he's comparing constantly the old sacrifices to Jesus' sacrifice, the old tabernacle temple to the real tabernacle temple, the presence of God, the old high priest system to the new high priest system, the old covenant to the new covenant. He's trying to get these Christians to understand you're following Jesus now. You don't, you're not reverting back into Judaism. And so maybe there are these strange teachings coming in about food, that eating these sacrificial meals at the temple um, were strengthening the heart um, in a way that they wanted to do that and go back there and participate. He's saying, no, no, no. What will strengthen your heart is when you understand the grace that Christ has purchased for you and gives you. So he'll say this in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, who serve the tabernacle, the temple, they don't eat at. Is we have food. We have something that strengthens our heart. Look at what it is. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's going to make a comparison. The first is in the temple system, um, for certain sacrifices, you would burn the animals outside the camp and then bring the blood into the holy place. Okay? There's a purity law. And he says, look at what happened with Jesus or sacrifice. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He says, Jesus suffered outside the gate. Um, Jesus historically died outside the city limits, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the gate, and his blood has been brought into the true temple. He says, you don't need to worry about all that anymore. We have the ultimate sacrifice. Our heart is strengthened by understanding his death on our behalf. Outside the gate. But then he says this. Not only do we understand that in verse 13. Catch this. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. He says, Jesus died a criminal, an insurgent, a blasphemer outside of the temple system. He says, do you expect anything different? He says, if you're going to follow him, go outside the camp. Yeah, will you lose friends? Will there be suffering? Will there be problems? Yeah, yes, and yes, and yes. You shouldn't expect differently. But you're not his. So this is discipleship. 
go outside the camp. We can say discipleship um, involves not only imitation, but obedience. Obeying, submitting to his will. Fitting our lives into what he's called us to do. Now I want you to follow me on something, okay? Don't get lost here. He says this, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp. Now why did Jesus go outside the camp? Where was he going? To the cross. To Golgotha, to the cross. So we're now going outside the camp. Maybe we're going to a cross ourselves. And he says, and we're going to bear the reproach that he endured. Now if you go to chapter 12, verse 2, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross outside the camp, despising the shame that was associated with the cross. In chapter 13, he says, we go outside the camp and endure the reproach, the shame that comes with going such places. This seems to be a clear command here in Hebrews that we heard in the Gospels, which is to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. To pick up a cross and follow Jesus. Um, In all the synoptics, so Mark, Matthew, and Luke, um, we're told to uh, deny ourselves to take up the cross. You might look in Luke 14, I believe, chapter or verse 27. Um, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be worthy to follow me, pick up a cross. We have so watered this down um, that it's not funny. Bearing a cross has nothing to do with suffering in the sense of being sick or having hardships of, of that nature or just little personal like pet peeves, things like that. Um, bearing a cross, to pick up a cross, means one of two things. The first thing it means is you will die. You pick up a cross to die. The only reason you hold a cross is because you're about to die. This could not have been more literal in the Gospels. Pick up a cross, follow me. If we want to water it down, the most we can water it down is this. Consider yourself dead. Die to yourself. Consider your life a life with a cross on its shoulder. Your hopes and your dreams and your plans and your ideas are now gone and buried, and you live for one person and one person alone. That's Jesus. Just go outside the camp and bear the same reproach. Well, will there be suffering? Yes. Will there be shame? Yeah. Will it be difficult and hard? Will it involve me doing things I don't want to do? And instead submitting myself to the will of the Father like Jesus in the garden? Yes. That's what it means to be a disciple. You imitate and you obey. You deny yourself. Now if we keep reading in verse 15 and 14, we'll get to this in a minute. But he says, for here we have no lasting city. Right? We're seeking the city that is to come in 15. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, bearing the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. And then we don't neglect to do good and to share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We might say discipleship, obedience, also involves um, the practical expression of both, two things here, both, one, the love for God, and then love for others. Praising his name fruit of our lips, and then doing good, sharing what we have. Both of these things seem to be acceptable sacrifices to God. They seem to please Him. You might recognize this twofold pattern from the rest of Scripture. Um, The Ten Commandments famously are broken up into the first four, the last six. First four are about loving God. Last six are about loving the people around us. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment is, says two things. One, the greatest, love the Lord your God with everything that you've got, and then love the people around you. Love God and love others. Here he says, what's it look like as we pick up our cross, as we follow him, where we're offering up praise to him, then we're doing good, we're sharing what we have. Um, This sharing what we have is the Greek word koinonia. You might recognize this, we mentioned a few times here. It's commonly translated as fellowship. In other passages, you'll see it as fellowship. Um, and we have, we, we think of that a lot of like, a, like a potluck kind of dinner. So we have fellowship and that's true and right. Um, but also carries the, like a financial overtone, right? Of generosity. We remember this from last week. The faith family takes care of itself. We protect each other. We serve each other selflessly. We provide for each other. We seek the good of the people around us. And so we're on mission together. We're having fellowship. We're sharing. We're doing good. And then where are we going? Well, um, the New Testament is very clear um, that while we have received salvation, the story doesn't end there, right? 
Where did Jesus go? If you, you look at this parallel again, Jesus goes outside the camp to do what? To sanctify people through his own blood. As we go outside the camp, our mission is no different. Now, we're not actually dying for the people's sins. We're not sanctifying people through our blood. But we're what? We're leading people to his sanctifying blood. We're going outside the camp on mission. Jesus is very clear. Look in John 17. He prays before the cross and he says, I'm done. I've completed my work. It is finished. John 17. Before he dies. What did he do? You remember we did a series on this. What he says he finished, the work he was given, was simply getting a group of disciples who would still be there after he left. And would go out into the world advancing his mission. He says, and John, as I have been sent, so now I send you. And so we pick up our cross and we go out into the world. To go outside the camp, we might say, um, would mean to go into the inner city, to go into dark places, to go into dangerous places, to go into broken places, to go into the prisons, to go into the third world. Suburbia um, has a responsibility to the city. Um, you and I, uh, healthy, have a responsibility to the sick. You and I, um, un- oppressed, have a responsibility to the oppressed as Christ's people. When we go outside the city with our fellowship and with our mission, proclaiming again Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have leaders, um, we're being shaped into Jesus' people, we're being discipled um, into um, those who follow him. And then lastly, again, I think all of this um, comes up together with this idea of worship. Um, So again, through him, we offer up a sacrifice of praise. We're doing good and sharing what we have for such sacrifice or pleasing to God. Um, We'll skip to verse 20. We've done, obey your leaders, pray for your leaders. And then in verse 20, he gives us a benediction, a doxology, a prayer. We might do well to pray this as well. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now let's stop here for just a second. Okay, this is not, this is free, but this is the only time in the book of Hebrews that he mentions the resurrection of Jesus. You can go back and read it. This is the only time he mentions the resurrection of Jesus. It's implicitly there, but this is explicit. He mentions it. And he's deliberately here echoing Isaiah 63. This is a weird phrase. Nowhere else in the scriptures we see this. Um, that he brought again from the dead. Um, this is the ESV trying to do something that maybe I would do as he led out from the dead. Now, all throughout the New Testament, God raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus never raised himself from the dead. God raises Jesus from the dead. Here, God leads out or brought out again from the dead our Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 63, God led out the Israelites from Egypt and gave them Moses, their shepherd, Here he leads out Jesus from the grave as our shepherd, the great shepherd. We mentioned last week that maybe the most important thing we can do is name God. Who is the God that we serve? If we just are content with three letters, God, with no substance to them, we could end up in a very dangerous place. The scriptures always name God. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Here we can say this. If God means anything, whatever we mean by the word God... And I don't assume that we all mean the same thing. But whatever we mean, we need to mean this. The one who led the Israelites out of Egypt, and who also then later led Jesus out of the grave. That's who we serve. That's who we follow. That's who we're praising. Our faith has to be centered on that God. Faith in Jesus, the one who led him. Jesus, the revelation of who God is. God incarnate. Some of us in America have tried to so water down Christianity to where we have Jesus. We like his sacrifice, but we'd rather just serve this universal God that we can all come to ourselves with our own reason and our understanding. The God of the scriptures is, is very much Jesus God. Your faith is in him. You worship him. To him be the glory. So it says, okay, may the, that was free. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that's who we're following, that's our God, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, again, a sacrifice for us, purchasing us into this covenant that he is our God. We will be his people. Our sins are forgiven. He will write his law inside of us, transforming us into his. May he equip us with everything good 
that we would do his will and that he would work inside of us that which is pleasing to his sight through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Worship, we mentioned this last week, two weeks ago. Um, it's the sacrifice and offering of our entire lives. It's not a genre of music. It's not a, a, a rack of music at Barnes & Noble or racks of music at Lifeway. Worship is a lifestyle. It involves music and singing. Yes, we often gather up our praise on our lips, but we praise Him with our lives as well, with our obedience, with our actions. He says, what's an acceptable sacrifice? Well, it's these things. It's praising Him. It's doing good. It's sharing what we have. And then again, we might say, worship is a response to the work of God through Jesus. Because of who he is, because of the kingdom we have received, because of the covenant we are involved in, because of the great shepherd that we have, because of the resurrection of our king, we follow him, and we worship him, and we obey him, and we pray prayers like this, which is, may the same God, with that same power that he raised Jesus from the dead, so transform my life. Which, if you, if you follow along in the New Testament, um, is a promise we're given in Romans 8, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of believers. You should never miss that. You should hold on to that with everything you've got. The same spirit that raised him from the dead. The same spirit that led the Israelites out of Egypt. The same spirit that created the entire universe dwells inside of his people to transform and to lead and to protect them. He says, may the same God, may he so work in us that our lives would be pleasing in his sight. Undeserved love given to us by God, and then delight in the love that we return back to him. We've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews. If you remember, this idea that, that there's a certain way that you and I can be, maybe not just do, but can be, where Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And we read that, and I go, I don't, I don't understand that. I have it here, but I don't understand it. And then if you remember um, from chapter 11, um, those who have faith in God, God says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. And we read that, and I go, I don't, I don't get that either. I mean, we have it here, but I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. God would, again, if you remember, I feel like God should qualify everything I do. <laughs> Like, he's mine. Okay, well, let me just explain that. When he's doing this, he's mine. When he's thinking like this, he's mine. Otherwise, I'm not so sure about this guy. I'm still working on him, right? But that's not what the scriptures portray. They portray those who have faith, who have seen who Jesus is, who have been so worked in by God. He looks at them and goes, hey, guess those are mine. Look at, look at those people. Look at them. They're mine. Jesus goes, the brothers and my sisters who are following me, who are offering up their lives for me. You remember when Stephen dies, Jesus stands up at the right hand of God. Normally we think of him and are told that he is sitting down. Possibly he is, in a sense, honoring Stephen, welcoming him into the life that comes after dying for God. My brother, well done. May God work inside of us that we would live lives that are pleasing to him. And he closes, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, my sermon, if I've written to you briefly. No, you haven't, bro, um, but we appreciate that. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy was in prison. He's out with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. He might be heading your way. Greet your leaders. Greet the saints. Those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. He closes the sermon, and the community is off and running. They're heading somewhere. They're heading to the promised land. They're heading to the sanctuary. They're heading to the city that is to come. And we might wrap up the entire book of Hebrews. We might try humbly to summarize it with this phrase. And we'll close the series with this. The offer stands for them and for us that we can find everything in Jesus or lose everything without him. He says, look, you can, you can stay in the camp if you want, and you can appreciate this city if you want, but it's not going to be here long. Or you can leave the camp. You can go to the cross. You can head toward the city that is to come, and you'll find everything. Others have said it like this, um, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
or everything minus Jesus equals nothing. The author holds on and says, here's, here's your choice. And this isn't just for non-believers. It's a community of people who have put their faith in Christ, who are following him. To us as well, the opportunity comes out. The call comes out every day, yesterday, today, and forever. We can find everything in him, in his covenant, in his blood, in his call in our lives. Or we can watch it all go doing our own thing. And the pastor, he, he writes to this group, and, and he says after every warning, this isn't us. We're heading to the city. We just got to go. We just got to get on with it. And by God's grace, may the same be true of us, that he would so work inside of us that we would find everything in him. We would know and be fully aware that you lose everything outside of him, but we're those who go outside the camp. We're those on our way to the city that is to come. We are those whose lives themselves are sacrifices and offerings that God looks at and is pleased with and says, that's what I wanted all along. Do you remember from Jesus' sacrifice, that psalm that Hebrews quotes? He says, this is what I wanted. I wanted a human being whose life was mine, who said, you are so worthy, here I am, all of me. Glorify your name. I'm standing before your throne. We can find it all in him or, or we can lose it all without him. By God's grace, we'll find it. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you and we thank you um, for all that you have done for us and in us and through us. Uh, I look back over the past three years here, I'm leading um, this group. Uh, I praise you for your faithfulness and I, I praise you for the next three years to come. Um, I praise you for your faithfulness. We walk through the book of Hebrews. I pray that you have and did and continue to speak to us as we are faithful to your scriptures and to your message that you are and have spoken, um, that we would find our joy and our life and our peace and our salvation in you. I pray that today we would offer up the praises of our lips and then be sent out in the week to offer up the praises of our deeds, of our, our obedience, um, that we would find in you all uh, that we need and, and desire. We love you, Jesus. We need you. It's in your son's name that we pray. And all God's people said,